This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. When we look back at the theologians who helped shape America in the 20th century, no litany can be complete, or even get started, without mentioning Reinhold Niebuhr. Known by some as America's Conscience, he was a major participant in helping to define how we as a country defined the social gospel how we attacked various issues in our society that worked against equality, parity, and democracy. Recently, PBS aired the program An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. Perhaps you saw it on our sister station, WGVU-TV. In case you didn't, I hope you're able to catch it online at pbs.org. One of the show's participants is Reverend Gary Dorian, Aside from commenting on the works of Niebuhr in the film, he also wrote a very thought-provoking piece on religiondispatches.org entitled Irony Repeats Itself, Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era. We thought that the program and the essay complement one another quite well, so we've asked Reverend Dorian to join us today to talk about both. A bit about our guest... Reverend Gary Dorian teaches at Union Theological Seminary and Columbia University. He is an Episcopal priest. His many books include, most recently, Kantian Reason and Hegelian Spirit, The Idealistic Logic of Modern Theology, which won the Association of American Publishers Prose Award in 2013, and The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. We welcome to Common Threads, Reverend Gary Dorian. Hello, Gary. Hello, Fred. Uh, let's. Uh, why don't we start from the very beginning, in case uh, people are not familiar with uh, with Reinhold. Just exactly who was he? Well, he was one of the two or three most influential American theologians of the 20th century. Uh, he was a product of the social gospel movement, and he doesn't exist without it. Uh, He was a pastor in Detroit for uh, 11 years uh, before he came uh, to teach social ethics at uh, Union Theological Seminary, and then he had an enormously influential career as a a critic, uh, as a writer of books that helped to shape uh, the field, uh, and as someone who reacted to all the sort of colossal uh, world-shattering events of the 20th century. I mean, he lives between two world wars and responds to the Depression and then has a role to play in the Cold War as well. So um, he is someone who uh, has uh, had a great deal of influence in simply uh, setting the terms by which we talked about uh, these great uh, events uh, in, uh, in 20th century Christianity. For someone who changed his positions so many times, how was he taken seriously? Uh, um, And what I'm going to do, Gary, is read from your piece. I'm just going to read a a, a brief paragraph to give people the sense of just exactly the many camps that uh, Reinhold Niebuhr found himself in. You write, Niebuhr attained fame 
by blasting the moral idealism of liberal Protestant church leaders. In the 1920s, he chafed at social gospel idealism while calling for more of it, not knowing what else to say. In the 1930s, he urged church leaders to throw off their moralism to join the class struggle against a dying capitalist order. In the 1940s, he urged church leaders to throw off their moralism to support the armed struggle against fascism. In the 1950s, he urged them to throw off their moralism to support America's Cold War against communism. In every case, it mattered that there was a powerful ecumenical culturally dominant Protestant establishment to criticize. Niebuhr took for granted that liberal Protestantism had immense cultural influence and it was his group. Otherwise, his ferocious criticism of it would not have mattered. So so let's talk about those, as I say, those various camps he found himself in and how he moved uh, between one and the other and how he maintained his credibility. Yes. Well, uh, firstly, I think in the previous paragraph, I actually took you through the whole zig and zag in one long, one long paragraph. It was, I think, maybe even one long sentence, uh, which sort of you know, people sort of got the sense of yes, indeed, how many different positions he held politically. Because politically, uh, Niebuhr changed his politics in some very significant way almost every decade, uh, and certainly within every decade of his whole career. Uh, you'd get a, a major zig and zag going, and this is someone who whose politics uh, were, you know, steering the boat. Uh, uh, it took him; he's not until about 1940 that he's really settled upon his theology. Uh, so that becomes an anchor for him when he finally settles, sort of what it is. Um, but long before that, and then long after it, uh, there's this zig and zag uh, of the politics, and Niebuhr was very political. Uh, so all of that is just always uh, in 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 place, uh, and uh, even talking about Niebuhr in any way uh, to generalize him about it at all, you almost always have to end up coming back and saying, "Well, where, which one are we talking about here? You know, which decade? Uh, what is he re- responding to?" Because there are so many Niebuhrs out there. That is, people who sort of pick their favorite one. Uh, and go for that. But that paragraph you read does at least, uh, because of my uh, refrain about throwing off your moralism, there's something showing there about what is continuous. Uh, That is, even while Niebuhr changes his position uh, so often, uh, he's always concerned to be realistic uh, by his lights. He's always concerned that his group, that is liberal Protestantism, uh, is just too idealistic and too moralistic in the way that it uh, approaches the world and thinks about it and preaches uh, the gospel, and the gospel ends up becoming a just very idealistic, moralistic sort of uh, social gospel uh, understanding. So even though that is his group, and this is the other important thing, it, people who don't get this, just think that Niebuhr is this severe critic of liberal Protestantism from somewhere else, but it's the criticism is so severe, um, and without even really ref- being reflective about it, because that is his group. I mean, Niebuhr has no position whatsoever. Uh, you, he wouldn't be teaching at Union, you know, if he weren't uh, if he weren't a liberal Protestant product of the social gospel. So all of that is always going on with Niebuhr, and then it's just a question of. 
you know, uh, talking about, okay, well, where are we right now? It's the Niebuhr, are we talking about the Niebuhr of the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or the 60s? And, and I get the impression from your essay and from the TV program that being a uh, uh, Niebuhrian, is, is that the right way to, to say yeah. it? <laughs> uh, being a Niebuhrian was a challenging thing because it, it seemed like he was always disappointing people who were in his camp because then he would take uh, the completely opposite uh, point of view. Uh, for instance, talk about his journey from pacifism to not pacifism. Yes, in the film they have David Brooks uh, comment on this, and rather puckishly David says, uh, you know, when you, change, when, you, when you change camps, when you go from one to the other, you would think that, oh, the, you know, the new people are going to welcome you. But no, that's not how it works. The people you just broke from, they hate you for, you know, showing them up. And the new people, they hate you even more because they're not, they're not sure they trust you. Uh, and um, Niebuhr did have to deal with a fair amount of that. Uh, his, uh, his close friend, June Bingham, who wrote one of the first biographies of Niebuhr, she titled it Courage to Change, because to her that was the key to Niebuhr, you know, that he, he does have this uh, courage to change uh, his positions. And um, the, certainly a, a major one, one that's as uh, fundamental as any other, <clears throat> is the fact that Niebuhr is, a, is typical of so much of liberal Protestantism of the 1920s. He had this whole generation of ministers who preached pro-war sermons in 1917 and 1918, and then after the war turned out badly and the, the, the peace had nothing whatsoever to do with Woodrow Wilson's 14 points or making the world safe for democracy or anything like that. It was just strictly the vengeance of the victors uh, and a terrible situation that sort of imposed upon Germany that sows the seeds of the next war. They, they can see this coming. Um, these ministers who preached those pro-war sermons were just appalled uh, and, and repentant uh, for um, preaching sermons that they felt you know, had just been falsified by, at Versailles. Um, so we have this whole generational tidal wave of people um, like uh, Georgia Harkness and, and um, the great preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick and so many others. So many of them took that Sherwood Eddy tour uh, to the war camps, uh, and, and they came home and said, I am a pacifist. I am never going to preach another pro-war sermon. I hope I can stick to that. And Niebuhr is one of them. Uh, this is back when, you know, he was a pastor in Detroit at this time. Uh, and he writes in his diary, in a book that was later published as uh, under the title Leaves from the Notebook of a Tamed Cynic, uh, he says, I am done with the war business. I hope I can stick to that. I hope I can keep to that vow that I am done with it. And so for 10 years, you know, he did. He was, he not only clung to a kind of anti-war idealism, but he did it so with such energy and brilliance, he ended up becoming the president of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, you know, the, the leading Christian pacifist organization. So he's really trying to stick to it, live it out, and bringing others to it all through the 1920s. Um, so when Niebuhr ends up turning away from that and just saying, no, uh, that 
that too is a distortion. It's you know it's running with something that's just too simplistic, and yes, it's moralistic. Uh, that I have to let go of the moralism that is in me in order to make the gospel make sense in a world of conflict and uh, where you can't just opt out from the struggle for power. Um, that is that is his biggest turn of all. Uh, and he writes an essay in 1934 called Why I Leave the FOR. Uh, and it's one of the classics of, uh, of Christian social ethics. It's just one of those texts that if you're anywhere near this subject, you have to you know deal with it um, because he's laying out his reasons why he's going to break from the very thing that he had said so passionately all through the 1920s. That's that's interesting because you say he has this epiphany in 1934, uh, which is a few years before World War II, and one can see the the logic of an evolution of thought from pacifism to just war when we're attacked by Japan and when we enter the war or or when, uh, well, when we enter the war with Germany as well. Uh, But what's happening in 1934 that encourages him to make that move? Well, yes, there are some really key things to take apart there because often people do kind of run with an impression about this. It's like, oh, he's... He's seeing Nazi Germany on the on the rise, and he's you know uh, uh, determined to fight against it. That that is how this story turned out, but that was not uh, what he was thinking at all uh, in the early 1930s. Um, the The announcement in 1934 that he's leaving um, it's 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 a classic text, but actually the announcement itself is coming for a couple of years. I mean the. The, the major text, the greatest book Niebuhr ever wrote, was in 1932. It's called Moral Man and Immoral Society, and it made the argument that is the, just the, the crucial um, Niebuhr social ethical argument uh, that informs all of his work. And so the argument for why he's going to have to give up being a pacifist is, or is there um, in that book. And um, it is... It is uh, part and parcel of an of his uh, concern uh, to say that we need to move that his group liberal liberal Protestantism needs to move to the left politically and he says rather vaguely to the right theologically um, he has very little idea what he really means by the latter in the early 1930s. Um, what he does mean on the political side is he has become not just a socialist, because he was a socialist before. I mean, he's already friends with Norman Thomas and running for the Socialist Party in 1928, 1929, so uh, he was already a socialist. Uh, but now it's, it's, he's moving into a much more sort of hard-edged, power-oriented uh, we have to take responsibility for the violence that's required in order to gain power and make social gains and then defend those gains. Uh, and all of that uh, is driving him to a much more sort of power-oriented analysis in which he's arguing that, you know, violence is just intrinsic to politics. You can't have any kind of a politics that gains or secures anything that doesn't have violence as a means to any end that you're seeking. And that being the case, it's just all these liberal sermons where people are saying, oh, we need to be like Gandhi, and, the, and Jesus was like Gandhi, and so on, the very sermons he gave in the 1920s. 
he's saying we have to stop that. It isn't true. Um, and it's a way of kind of making the gospel itself kind of superficial, reducing it to a kind of moralistic idealism. So it's in the name of an actually quite hard-line, left-wing, neo-Marxist socialism um, that Niebuhr is um, repudiating pacifism um, in, his, in the early 30s. Um, now, but being on that trajectory does take you to the Niebuhr of... 1940, uh, in which he's pleading with Americans to face up to uh, entering World War II and coming to the aid of poor beleaguered Britain, which, of course, uh, in 1940-41, you know, England is just holding on uh, by themselves uh, against the Nazis. The rest, the rest of Europe is rolled over. And uh, Niebuhr has an, an English wife by then, and he has lots of friends in the Labour Party, in England, and he's something of an Anglophile himself. So his his own just deep admiration and just love uh, of the Brits um, for holding on uh, against Hitler um, by themselves. That they they come through in some of these classic writings he wrote in forty and forty one, especially an essay called "On the Triumph of an, of an Intolerable Tyranny," um, trying to marshal his country to to um, to fight in the war. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Reverend Gary Dorian, and we're talking about his essay, Irony Repeats Itself, Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era. Uh, you know, that uh, that description that you mentioned, or that, that he encouraged liberal Protestantism to go uh, to the left politically and to the right theologically, that did stick out, and I had to scratch my head. You're saying that it was vague, and you can you put any more flesh on those bones? Oh, sure. Uh, well, the, the um, driving all of this, I mean, Niebuhr is a social gospeler. You know, he's from the beginning of his career. I mean, he went to Yale Divinity School. I mean, his you know, you back further up. His father was was an evangelical and reformed pastor. He grew up in the Midwest, um, so he grew up with a fairly typical uh, Midwest evangelical Protestant uh, background, tinged with the social gospel. Then goes uh, for his training at Yale Divinity School, where he heard it a lot, and he's a full fledged um, social gospel liberal. By the time he <clears throat> came out of seminary. Uh, and started as a pastor in Detroit. Um, and there, I mean, the key to the social gospel is just is the idea that, that the Church has a mission to transform the structures of society in the direction of social justice. You know, the Church, no Church had said that before the mid-1880s. But with the social gospel movement, you've got a whole language about social structure and that there's such a thing as social justice, and the Church needs to be involved in creating structures of social justice, and Niebuhr is fully a product of that, that whole movement that enlisted um, the Church uh, in, in struggles for, for peace and justice. And, of course, that's the whole basis of his career. Once he come, gets to Union, teaching social ethics, that's what, that, that's what that field is all about. I mean, his field, social ethics, had no history or basis whatsoever except, you know, apart from the social gospel. 
Um, so Niebuhr takes that for granted his whole career. Uh, people who want to read him as later becoming conservative in some ways that repudiates the social gospel, or people who just read take too literally his blasting away at the idealism and moralism in the social gospel, and who think then he therefore became something else, it's just not true. I mean, the, the questions, the issues, the, the, just the defining orientation of, of social gospel Protestantism, that, that defines Niebuhr's entire career. He never took any of that uh, for granted, or, or put it in question. The issue is, what does it mean? Uh, what kinds of movements do you have to be involved in to actually get social justice? Because his concern is that liberal Protestantism just becomes so moralistic, so idealistic, that it actually doesn't do any real good uh, in society um, in order to you know, make a better world, that it's just too naive and idealistic. So that critique is always going on on, on the one side. On the other, so far as the theology goes, yeah, a, a certain kind of uh, kind of romanticized idealism um, and moralism uh, that's in the social gospel theologically ends up producing bad politics. That, that's the argument. So um, he needs to rethink what he thinks theologically once he's once he has come to a point where he's very critical of how the social gospel lives itself out in political movements and in social movements and the like, um, that does push him to the theological question of just, well, what's, if something's gone wrong in the social ethics, well, what, what, what is it that's wrong in the theology that helped to produce that result? You know, that's his question. And um, he's got a brother who's pushing him pretty hard to, to put the question in just that way. Because uh, his brother, another brilliant theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr, who taught at Yale and who was, the two brothers were very, very close. Um, H. Richard Niebuhr tries to get his brother to admit that the whole social gospel project is wrong, that the church just took a wrong move. Uh, back then, and that uh, and that Riney needs to needs to overthrow the whole thing in order to start all over again, um, and that is not going to happen. I mean, Reinhold Niebuhr, the idea of just overthrowing the social gospel is just not in him. Uh, it is his career, but his brother does help him to pu- you know pushes him and prods him to think about how far he has come theologically from. The faith that their father preached, he says. Uh, he says, I, for you, religion is just a source of some kind of social ethical idealism that it does certain kind of justice work in the world. He says that's liberal. That's a liberal way of thinking about Christianity. He says you don't even mention Martin Luther or John Calvin anymore. The gospel we heard that shot through with Martin Luther, I, it's just nowhere evident uh, in your work. And that critique, that's 1932, 1933, um, that critique, you know, worked on Niebuhr. Um, he realized he had, to, he had to rethink yet again uh, what, is, what his basic theology was. And it takes him the entire 1930s to do that. And this uh, dovetails off of that, and if you could answer this briefly, because we're getting pretty close okay. to the end of this episode. Um, and I know that when we throw labels on people or even when people throw labels on themselves, it's very limited. 
But right. in this conversation about liberal and conservative and this and that, uh, he was described as neo-orthodox. I have right. no idea what that means. Help me. <laughs> well, um, yes, uh, this we might need to hold this for the next. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the next segment, because it's there is just so much. Uh, I mean, this has to do with the whole history of 20th century theology and Karl Barth and uh, and all of that. Um, the to to just go for it as just as briefly as possible. Niebuhr wrote a book in 1935 called An Interpretation of Christian Ethics, and there is a kind of binary in it. He says people who are you know. Uh, conservative theologically, they take the myths that are in the Bible literally, and then people who are theologically liberal, uh, liberal Christians, as soon as they see something that's mythical in the Bible, they just throw it out, uh, and they end up substituting some modern myth of progress or whatever, some end uh, for for the scriptural teaching. And his third way uh, between orthodox overbelief and liberals who don't believe nearly enough is to say we need to take the myths that are in Scripture seriously, but not literally, right? Um, and that, that's as good, it's certainly on Niebuhr's terms, that's as good as, as any kind of window on how he sort of proceeds and trying to find some third way uh, between so much of the church that's just that that claims to believe things that are in fact unbelievable, uh, and and then a liberal Protestantism that's that's much too willing to just throw it all out um, in order to and reduce it to something much less than true faith. Gary, I think you did a marvelous job of encapsulating that in just a couple of minutes. You, so no no worries there. Uh, now, you are at uh, Union Theological Seminary. How is Niebuhr treated today? Uh, I, can you possibly get a degree there without uh, being an expert in Reinhold Niebuhr? Oh, sure. That happens all the time. <laughs> um Niebuhr has never really gone away. Um, certainly, uh, you know, he died in 71, and um, probably his steepest fall uh, within the field actually occurred right around that time because we had the, the advent of liberation theology, and he had, just been, he had just been riding so high anyway for so long in the field that to be in social ethics meant that you were, you were dealing with Niebuhr one way or another. So um, there was a, certainly a fall-off for some time uh, afterwards, but there have been various Niebuhr revivals um, ever since, and you just can't um, be in this field, tell its story, deal with you know, dominant theories and methods and the like without just confronting him all the time, uh, because he was by far uh, the dominant figure in this story. Um, and then, you know, I wrote this big book on the history of, uh, of social ethics a few years ago, um, and a number of the folks who are in it, you know, weren't necessarily social ethicists. They're people like Walter Rauschenbusch or Martin Luther King. I mean, they're people who made enormous contributions. They're not necessarily teaching social ethics. Uh, but Niebuhr made enormous contributions, and he's actually sitting in, you know, the chair uh, of it at Union Seminary. So uh, there's... There's never been a time when he just went away, and then, of course, there have been various revivals. 
uh, Niebuhr revivals over the years. We had a big one uh, after the United States invaded Iraq, uh, and we suddenly had all these po- political science guys saying, oh, we need a revival of Niborian realism. Right? And, Niborian and, realism would not have invaded Iraq. And, and we, can, we can talk about uh, the, the revival that you believe might be coming uh, next week, Gary, because this is a, a great conversation, and I appreciate your, uh, your presence today. So right. uh, I, I want to thank you, and I want to mention uh, briefly that we've been talking to Reverend Gary Dorian from Union Theological Seminary about his essay, Irony Repeats Itself, Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Reverend Gary Dorian. He is the author of an essay entitled, Irony Repeats Itself, Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era. And you can read that essay on religiondispatches.org. Also, if you're interested in Reinhold Niebuhr, you can go to pbs.org and see a wonderful documentary. It's about an hour long uh, on Reinhold Niebuhr. A little bit about our guest, Reverend Gary Dorian, teaches at Union Theological Seminary and Columbia University. His many books include, most recently, Kantian Reason and Hegelian Spirit, The Idealistic Logic of Modern Theology, which won the Association of American Publishers Prose Award in 2013, and The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. We welcome once again to Common Threads, Gary Dorian. Hello, Gary. Hello, Fred. Uh, Listen, last week we covered a lot of ground on Reinhold Niebuhr. I won't ask you to repeat. uh, If if people want to know a little bit more about him, of course, he can, anyone can go to either your essay, uh, which is a wonderful one, by the way, uh, which is online at, as I mentioned, religiondispatches.org, and also uh, the, uh, the documentary on PBS that is called An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. So let's get to uh, his book that you did mention last week, 
and I believe this was his uh, seminal work, Moral Man, Immoral Society. Uh, It had a huge impact. And basically what he claims in there that an individual human can be moral, but groups, societies really can't. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could just give us a thumbnail sketch of, of his philosophy. I mean, if I can be moral and you can be moral and we get together, can't the both of us be moral? And then, you know, how many people do we have to add to our group before we become immoral? Right. Is it is it the, the addition of just one other person? Yes. Um, well, there is firstly the social gospel difference uh, here that Niebuhr sort of building on. The fact that he is a social ethicist, um, he's in a field that has, as I said last week, has no history, no basis whatsoever apart from the social gospel movement. And the social gospel was all about what they called social consciousness. And all these people like Walter Rauschenbusch and others who were raised in in just a typical um, conservative evangelical homes where they uh, had had a conversion experience and they came to Jesus and then their own preaching revolved around bring people to Christ and then they will be regenerated and then and then maybe you've got something about then they will go out and 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 do good things in society so that to the extent that you might have some notion about um, Christianity doing work in the world that makes a better society, it's usually along the lines of some kind of revivalism or individual conversionism, that that's, that's the, 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 the prerequisite thing. So when Walter Rauschenbusch, the great you know, theologian of the social gospel, uh, when he was a pastor uh, in Detroit, or when he was a pastor in New York City in Hell's Kitchen, um, that he just began that way. That's what he assumed uh, preaching was. Um, but Rauschenbusch was not doing it very long, uh, ministering to these poor, hurting, suffering people in, in these just wretched tenements and, and doing funerals for children. He said that's what got to him especially, uh, the, all those funerals he did for children. And he said, I just I could not get up there any longer uh, and just give this come-to-Jesus sermon uh, without any real sort of social dimension. Uh, and so he said, I, and so as he would say, I got social ideas. Uh, and um, this whole generation of social gospelers talked that way about just the difference it made once you saw that there's such a thing as social structure, um, that there is a, a social way of perceiving um, the world and even the coming to be of a self, that no one just is a self individuated or by themselves, that we're all sort of products of our relationships um, and the like. So all of that is is deep in Niebuhr. I mean, the, uh, the idea that, that individualism is never saving by itself, that we're, what the gospel is actually doing is you're supposed to be called out of your individualism into, into relationships. And those relationships, of course, have an uh, an effect on the kind of self um, that you become. So all of that is just, um, that's, you know, he's taking all of that for granted to even be uh, a social ethicist teaching at Union. Um, and then he, then he writes this book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, he says, we just need to think this forward. We're still stuck in a kind of idealistic way of talking about everything I just said. Um, 
that doesn't think through the problem of of um, social structure of of groups taking on characteristics that don't break down to their constitutive parts. The whole basis of sociology as a discipline is that is the principle of synergy that 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 groups do in fact acquire characteristics that have to be understood on their own terms uh, that don't just break down. They don't just you can't understand groups just by based on what you understand about individuals within them. Um, and but we still have a way of preaching the gospel that doesn't take that nearly seriously enough. That is to say that that there is no such thing as a moral group because this kind of combines the kind of synergistic effect of all these selfish people uh, getting together who are trying to work against their selfishness, right? Trying to do good uh, and can, to some degree, do it uh, on an individual level. Uh, when they end up in in any in, in associations, um, we get a kind of combined synergistic effect of all the, all the selfishness that's in all of us uh, anyway. And being serious about that, just just being realistic about the the selfishness, the will to power, the pridefulness that's in every single human being. Um, write write that out a little larger. See what happens in when whenever those selfish human beings uh, form into groups. Um, groups themselves do not aren't aren't um, they don't have the break. They don't have the the impulse to um, to do something self self sacrificial for the sake of the other that individuals at least on occasion uh can pull off no no group ever sacrifices its interest for the out of love uh or even for the some social ideal um and so the title of the book moral man and immoral society um individuals are capable of self-sacrificial activity that um, puts your own interest aside uh, for this out of love for someone else. He says, but uh, give up on that notion applying to groups of any kind. And that being the case, then love is ju- it's just it's a category mistake to talk about love with regard to anything social. Uh, that love is personal and interpersonal, and it is the highest good in the realm of personal relations. But in the realm of society and groups and institutions and they're dealing with each other, love is just an inappropriate ideal. It doesn't apply. It's never actually in the picture. What is possible is some what he calls proximate justice. Um, That's as good as it gets uh, uh, in the social side. And that being the case, then you have to deal with... um, configurations of power and power relations and groups vying for power and nations, all nations are self-interested. Every nation's foreign policy is just writ large what it wants for itself. Um, and so that that critique was for Niebuhr the, what blew apart his earlier social gospel liberalism, his pacifism. He says, you gotta, if we keep these realms separate, we can see we can still preach the love language that's in the gospel but we also see its very decisive limitation and where it doesn't take you 
Last week you talked about the the fact that several times throughout the last uh, uh, hundred years uh, there have been revivals of of Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, and you make the point in your essay that maybe we should consider one now in the era of Trump. Talk about that. Well, um, firstly, I mean, we, Niebuhr, these revivals keep occurring partly because Niebuhr is the exemplar of something. Even people like... Um, uh, Jimmy, Car- you know, former President Carter uh, and uh, former President Obama, uh, uh, but especially Carter, uh, were uh, students of Niebuhr and um, read him. But even but others who maybe didn't even read him so much, there are many who hold him in very high regard because to all of them, Niebuhr is the the exemplar of of trying to hold together the things of Jesus and the things of Machiavelli, right? That it's the, um, even if you haven't read him a lot, you know that this is the guy who became famous for uh, writing book after book and page after page. He's struggling with that very binary of what it means to try to be Christian, to hold to the maxims of an ethic of love perfectionism, uh, that's quite idealistic and beautiful and noble and impossible. Uh, and on the other hand, the, what it takes to gain power and um, to, um, to use it responsibly, to take more responsibility for what power uh, you do have. And Niebuhr is the guy who's just always wrestling uh, with, that, with that set of questions. And he's, in some ways, hard, it's hard to talk about because he doesn't, he doesn't reduce to sound bites, you know. He's it's this is messy and it's complicated and requires uh, willingness to be flexible and to question your assumptions and so on. But Niebuhr does have that project sort of all the time, and so there are different ways of rendering what that means. And of course, there were different ways in his time uh, of doing so uh, as well. Um, but he always is is warning us about our selfishness our greed our will to power um saying we we need the gospel as a, as a reminder uh as a as a convicting force um that makes us aware um of our of our preoccupation with ourselves and, and the ways that we um baptize our own causes or politics and uh, the gospel, if nothing else, has to be a sort of critique of of nationalistic of, of nationalism and nationalistic idolatry, um, and so they have all these these tropes that go with all these Niebuhr books and with his whole legacy uh, in social ethics. Uh, there's no question we're we're getting a kind of revival of sort of interest in them and and, and even of him personally. Because, you know, look what we're dealing with in our public life. I mean, we have, we have a president right now who just sort of glories, who, 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 who uh, made his way to the nomination firstly by baptizing the birther movement, which was based on nothing but racism, uh, and then who uh, launches his campaign by, by denigrating 
uh, Mexican-American uh, immigrants, and then who made himself unbeatable in Republican primaries by calling for a Muslim ban. You know, what's being appealed to uh, in human beings when you're just constantly going to fear and xenophobia and, uh, you know, these div- this divisive language, even the, even the labeling uh, of all your rivals, everybody he's running against gets some demeaning label that, you know, makes them less uh, than who they are. Even that's a kind of example of, you know, what, you know, Niebuhr talks about of our, of our uh, narcissism feeding our, you know, will to power. Uh, and we've had just such a dramatic e- example uh, of it where you have to question whether there's ever any sort of moral calculus that's a break uh, on this, you know, political rhetoric we've heard. Um, that Niebuhr is certainly, you know, someone who uh, presses that kind of question all the time, because it's what he's always dealing with. Niebuhr had had grave concerns about John Kennedy. I mean, he you know he supported Kennedy, but he worried a great deal about just what he knew about Kennedy's personal life, his I, I, personal morality. I, I was going to ask you about that, but, yeah. but but before we go on, Gary, I just want to remind people that uh, you're listening to WGVU FM's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Reverend Gary Dorian. He is a teacher at Columbia University and Union Theological Seminary. And we're talking about two things, his essay uh, that you can find on religiondispatches.org entitled Irony Repeats Itself, Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era, and also the PBS documentary that you can find on pbs.org, An American Conscience, The Reinhold Niebuhr Story. Uh, I am... I know that you mentioned that in your essay that he had his questions about Kennedy, and I was curious. I, I wasn't aware that people, the the general public, was aware of Kennedy's uh, picadillos, shall we say, right. that is his moral shortcomings, say in the area of marital fidelity. How was he aware of any of that? Well, the public didn't know it, but you know the Kennedy administration was loaded up with people who. Um, had a you know that Niebuhr had relationships with had f- friendships and former students and the like. There are plenty of there were people like George Bundy who were actually good Niebuhr quoters. You know they knew they knew uh, Niebuhr's work, um, and so and Niebuhr feels some responsibility. After all, he's he's a mainstream liberal Democrat, uh, deeply involved uh, in party politics. He'd been much closer to Adley Stevenson than he ever was to Kennedy. Uh, and he he would have favored Stevenson again in 1960, you know, over over Kennedy. He really he had a fairly low view of Kennedy, partly on regards of this personal morality issue, and it even sort of galled him that people, some people, would think, actually thought that why does Niebuhr even care about that, right? I mean, to them, being Niborian means you, you there's this harsh line, right, between the personal and the social, the personal and the political. So what, what does it matter if, uh, if uh, Kennedy, you know, uh, is uh, so adulterous uh, and has uh, not much sign of a, of a stout personal morality of, of any kind? And to Niebuhr, that was just such a misunderstanding uh, of his work, although he realized there were plenty of people who took him that way. That was never uh, the meaning to him. He's this, Niebuhr himself was a deeply, you know, faithful Christian and prays at night and um, 
uh, for whom the, the the moral commands of the gospel are you know are serious. Um, so uh, uh, he his own deep involvement in the mainstream of the of the Democratic Party going back to the 1930s just meant that. Uh, you know, he had inside information uh, all along. In fact, he was uh, in the, uh, different parts of his career. He had friends in the State Department. You know, he'd get calls from the State Department or people wanting them to uh, talk about, you know, what we should, be, what should we be doing in Guatemala or whatever. Uh, you write, and is also this is also in the documentary uh, that you participated in uh, about his relationship with Billy Graham. And I, I find that interesting because it, it seems like the movement that Reinhold Niebuhr represents had a very, very strong foothold in American uh, consciousness in the earlier part of the 20th century. But towards the end of the 20th century, evangelical Christianity seemed to rule the day. Uh, and he was very critical of Billy Graham. Uh, uh, for a number of reasons that we can talk about. And I'm just curious if there was ever a dialogue or if Billy Graham ever responded. I, I didn't see from what I read that he ever responded to the criticisms of Niebuhr, at least publicly. And perhaps did he respond uh, privately? Oh, yes. Well, there's a great deal there. Um, firstly, um, Niebuhr is the product of that you know generation in which the 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 so-called fundamentalist versus modernist controversy ended up with the the liberal side winning in all the denominational struggles and every place where there was a kind of blowout and somebody won and somebody lost it was always the the folks who said we need to deal with the historical critical approach to the bible and all of that that won that kept the seminaries and so on and so the fundamentalist side ended up leaving the so-called mainline churches and formed their own churches and their own, you know, Bible ministries and parachurch organizations and so on. Uh, and then a generation later, Billy Graham uh, becomes uh, famous through his Los Angeles uh, crusade in 1948. And um, through the late 40s and early 50s, he is packing football stadiums and these enormous uh, crusades. So he's becoming a, a huge uh, figure. And all of this, that just the spectacle of Billy Graham becoming so famous um, was galling to Niebuhr um, because he is he li- lives in a heavily kind of secular world in which you're always sort of apologizing for Christianity, trying to say that no, you can still be Christian and be a fully a modern person, right? That's so much of Niebuhr's burden is just to try to show highly skeptical people that there's still a role for religion uh, in our society and in public life and the like, and and religion can be, you know, sophisticated and uh, liberal and uh, and realistic uh, in all the ways that he thinks are terribly important. So now here comes Billy Graham uh, packing football stadiums, and to Niebuhr it's like, where did these people come from, right? Well. Where they, you know, they were always there. These are the tens of millions of people uh, who who uh, identified uh, with, you know, a conservative way of understanding the gospel that Niebuhr, you know, just ruled out when he wrote uh, his book on interpretation of Christian ethics. 
So Billy Graham, among other things, is an embarrassment uh, to Niebuhr because it shows the persistence of a kind of Christianity that Niebuhr, frankly, says should not exist, simply should not exist in the 20th century. Uh, and that's his, that's, that comes through more than anything else, just embarrassment. Um, so he has these uh, essays, these articles on Graham, where he just, you know, he's always slamming him and always kind of putting him down, and sometimes in a quite patronizing uh, way. But there was one, and it was in 1957, he writes a piece halfway through one of his typical slams on Graham. He says, well, you know, Billy Graham, however, could do something ethically useful with his fame. Uh, if, he wanted to, if he really wanted to do something that was actually, you know, did some good, he could speak to and against the racism of his audiences. Um, and so this was very unusual for, for Niebuhr to call out anyone in that fashion. It almost never happened, uh, because Niebuhr himself didn't believe in calling people out that way. He thought that that sort of stratagem, that technique, really just smacked of self-righteousness, um, and he was against it, which is why he had a, a rather lousy record in the civil rights struggle of the 1950s. Uh, but in this instance, he did call out Graham um, to do that very thing, that is to speak about racism, um, and, and in a rather everyday fashion, too, um, to his audiences. And Graham said, and when Graham wrote his autobiography years later, he said, you know, it got to me, uh, that he felt the sting of Niebuhr's challenge to him. And Graham also tried to see Niebuhr. Uh, he worked pretty hard at trying to get a sit-down uh, with Niebuhr at Union. He even, at one point, worked through the chair of Union's board uh, to try to get him uh, to get Niebuhr uh, to, uh, to sit down with him, and, and through the president of Union, Henry Van Dusen. And Niebuhr refused. Uh, Niebuhr refused to sit down with Billy Graham. And the reason was that... Uh, he, he knew that Graham had a reputation for being able to, to win people over through his winsome sincerity and, and his charm. Uh, and Niebuhr did not want to be charmed. He did not want to be affected by whatever personal charism uh, that Nate, you know, Graham might be able to, to work on him. And so he just refused to, to ever meet with him. Um, and so there's a kind of, that's quite telling, sort of the impasse, uh, which uh, you're left um, between them. And there are all manner of ironies uh, about this whole thing, including how, how we talk about, you know, race. Um, but that's how it got left. Okay. Um, in terms of interfaith relationships, I know that he had an abiding friendship with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, and that broke some ground, obviously. Uh, Heschel uh, gave a eulogy at his, uh, at his uh, funeral. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if, those, uh, if there were any other breakthroughs in interfaith, and ecumenical for that matter, uh, uh, walls other than with Rabbi Heschel. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically right now of Catholicism and right. other religions, perhaps Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. Was, did he address any of those? Um, Catholicism was a, sort of a growth experience uh, for Niebuhr in the 1950s. First, we need to loop back to something we kind of left hanging last week that we never really got back to, and that has to do with you mentioned that he became a just war uh, advocate of just war. Actually, that isn't right. Niebuhr never became someone 
who advocated just war. To him, that's Catholic. Uh, it's Catholicism that talks about uh, there's a sort of a natural law, and it doesn't matter what sort of religion you are, that we're sort of bound by this natural law, and that natural law reasoning um, can, can yield criteria about waging a just war, making war just. And to Niebuhr, for many years, um, this whole conceptuality uh, of uh, trying to devise rules that make war good and that we cover us all morally in some kind of natural law reasoning, he regarded all this as just intrinsically Catholic and, and mistaken on that grounds. So even though this is said all the time that Niebuhr was a just war theorist, actually he wasn't. Uh, because he doesn't believe in the whole, the whole uh, project of saying, well, if you meet this condition and this one and that one, and of course there are seven of them, um, then uh, it can be moral to go into war, and then the, se- the same seven criteria go into judging the morality of actually fighting uh, a war. And he thought that Catholicism uh, just done immense harm uh, in... Um, in introducing and defending the idea that um, you know that war could ever be just, no, war is a lesser evil business, uh, and it has to be thought of just in those terms. Uh, certainly, to Niebuhr. So that that's all in the background. I mean, for many many years, um, but in the 1950s, Niebuhr did become um, more friendly uh, to Catholicism. This this starts with personal friendships. Um, starts with people, even then having you know Catholics in his class, or just it starts with you know those personal relationships where where they become real you know enfleshed human beings, not just representatives of some abstract principle or some uh, dogma uh, that he's against. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Today, my guest has been uh, Reverend Gary Dorian. He is the author of Irony Repeats Itself. Reconsidering Reinhold Niebuhr in the Trump Era, which can be found on religiondispatches.org. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.